Please note that this episode contains conversations around sexual violence that some listeners may find disturbing. You know, when you work with music, a big part of it is the intellectual piece and the words and the lyrics. And the other part is the physical. It's like having sex more or less. Like, ah, it's two very different sides that you have to connect. That was Jenny Wilson, and this is Nordic Portraits. Jenny Wilson is an internationally renowned musician, known for her bold conceptual albums and uncompromising artistic vision. Her recent trilogy of albums, Exorcism, Trauma and Mestavacket, have been lauded by critics and fans alike, as she shares her deeply personal experiences in the most creative and unflinching manner. Jenny, welcome to Nordic Portraits. Thank you. Jenny, I wondered if we could start by going all the way back to 1997. <gasps> oh, holy smoke. All where, right. <laughs> where, where you harnessed your fresh enthusiasm for music and founded a band, First Floor Power. And you and your bandmates were practically living in your rehearsal space. And, Almost, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and by your own admission, dirt poor. Mm-hmm. And I just wondered, what did life look like for you back then? Well, I think life was very simple and easy and fun, actually. It was me and my younger sister, Sara, and my boyfriend um, back then, called Jonas. And we had nothing else to do. I mean, we didn't have any proper work or anything like that. We didn't have any money, but that was not really a problem because we didn't spend so much money. So we really believed in music and the power of music and I couldn't imagine a life where I did anything else than just play music every fucking hour of the day. (laughs) I think we were almost a bit crazy in our dedication. (laughs) I mean, none of us could actually play when we started. I mean, the drama was really good, but the rest of us, we were just trying out and we knew what we liked and we knew what we didn't like. And then we tried to, you know, not copy because we weren't good enough, but we took some, you know, some Jonathan Richman, something from, <laughs> you know, all kinds of music. You have mentioned in the past that you come from a very DIY family. Yeah, I do. <laughs> so I wondered if yourself and Sarah had that inbuilt in you. I from- think so. Definitely. And also we were kind of raised the way that you never ask for help. So if you want to do something, you really have to do it all by yourself. And I mean, that's, um, I've been dealing a lot with that in my adulthood. That's something really bad, actually, to not ask for help. But when we still were young, things were not so complicated back then. I think it was just something really liberating to know that you could manage to do things all by yourself, that you didn't have to ask for permission from some old man or, you know. So it was a great school, I think, to start that band and to just try to make music because music is the 
greatest art form of them all. I think all of us thought that. In terms of the scene at the time, there were many Swedish bands finding success on the international stage. With this dedication and unbridled ambition you had, did it feel like anything was possible? I think the reality was pretty hard, actually. And we lived in Malmö, which is the south of Sweden, and everything big happened in Stockholm. And I think it still is like that. And you couldn't even burn your own CDRs back then. You know, you couldn't, we have to go to a special cafe that made them for us. I mean, if you compare to today, everybody's recording their own very professional records in their laptops. That was not the case back then. <laughs> You've mentioned before that at the age of five or six, you already declared to your family that you were going to be an artist. <laughs> yeah. And I think that was because I knew that it was possible, but I don't know, probably because my dad was such a DIY guy, everything he did, he did without help from anybody. And he could actually invent almost anything. And he was building everything. He could build everything. It was my, you know, my picture of my dad was that he could actually do anything. But we never talked about culture. We never talked about arts. We never talked about music, anything like that. It was more like a physical power. Hmm. So did you already identify that what he was doing involved creativity? Yeah, I think so. But then I, 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 I can imagine that I was pretty, you know, fragile child, thinking and dreaming a lot and writing poetry before I knew there was a word for it. Perhaps every kid do that. But I think I had figured out that I need to create something that comes from my <laughs> from my heart. So you were quite good at painting and drawing. Mm, I was actually amazing. I was really good as a kid. <laughs> so what then <laughs> brought you over to writing? Because you fell deeply into that in mm, your teenage years. Yeah, I did. I think perhaps drawing was something that we did all the time as kids. I was actually at my dad's house just a few weeks ago and me and my sisters, we were going through all the drawings. It's like thousands of, we had so much paper because dad, he came home with big, 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 big rolls with paper and then it was, so we were always drawing, drawing, drawing. So I think perhaps I didn't consider drawing being something artistic enough, if you know what I mean. I knew that I was really good at drawing because everybody told me, uh, but I think I wanted to express something more personal. And for that, I, I think I needed words. So I started to write. Have you similarly gone back to some of your early writings? And what's... Oh my <laughs> God. It's <laughs> No, actually, I was really good at drawing, but I was not very good at writing. <laughs> not as a teenager. I, I mean, it was very... A lot of, you know, teenage cliches. Yeah. Well, you were confident enough to quit high school and... Yeah, but I think that in some sense, I was good with the language. I was pretty smart and I think my teachers could see that and they encouraged me. So I had some kind of, you know, self-confidence in it. So I think I thought that I was really good. But actually, I mean, when I read it now, it's not good. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> it's horrible. But um, but then I started to 
I applied to a writing school and I think I learned a lot of tools to structure the story. But when I read the short stories and stuff that I wrote when I was there, I can clearly tell that I was, okay, I wrote that text when I just had read that book, like I was copying the style very much. But that's a way of learning also. Mm. PJ Harvey had a big influence. She kind of blew your mind, didn't Mm, she? mm. What was it about her? Yeah, I wonder what it was because I was already very familiar with a lot of fantastic, cool artists and bands and I I had been around a lot of concerts and festivals and stuff. So I was really into listening to music and exploring that universe. But perhaps it must have been something with, yeah, A, she was a woman and she was not just the bass player in a band like Kim Gordon or (laughs) Kim Deal, you know. She had this very special image and her looks almost frightened me she was so skinny so cool so uh, yeah I, I don't know what it was I was mesmerized by the pictures I think when she was sitting in her underwear and she looked like an 11 year old girl and then she had this extremely powerful voice and she could go very low and very high in pitch and especially her guitar playing So, yeah, when I heard her, I kind of like, you know, goodbye, paper and pen. (laughs) I don't want to write no fucking short stories no more. (laughs) Bye-bye. I'm going to start a band. (laughs) You unfortunately, tragically lost your mother Mm -hmm. when you were 14. She passed away after a battle with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. I wondered, growing up in this environment, this family you describe as somewhat emotionally closed off, Mm. How was it dealing with that grief as a family unit, particularly for you at the tender yeah. age of 14? I think we were not a unit at all. Hmm. We were like isolated cells. I was 14. Sarah, she was just 10 and she was very much a kid, you know. And our older sister, she was 18 and she moved out of the house very short after the our mother's death. And dad, he's from the north, which when we speak about men that don't talk in Sweden, we almost always think of a man that is born in the 40s, especially when he comes from the very north of Sweden, he's very silent. And our dad was sweet and kind and, you know, very gentle in many ways, but he he never talked. And I think that might have been the trigger for me to um, to actually be the one who talks. And I really hate secrets, you know, when things are hidden away and shh. So I decided, I think I was 16, and I made a decision to myself, I will always, always, always talk. I will always bring up even the things that are really difficult. I will always bring them to the surface because I know that it's so bad to not do it. It destroys so much. Yeah. So yeah, we didn't take care of the grief. I never grieved. And perhaps you can't really do that when you're 
14. You have to survive. And when you're kids, especially, you really have to survive. I think it's programmed in you that you switch on a survival mode. So when my mother died, just perhaps one week later, I... Uh, I reached out and met a lot of new friends a little older than me. And, you know, I really, okay, these are the cool guys. I'm going to hang with them. And from there, I started to explore music. And that new universe totally took over. So I never really, you know, of course, it was horrible. You can imagine to lose your mother. But I think I really occupied my mind with all the new, all the fantastic and I was so positive and mm, I, I guess that's a classical way of dealing with grief when you're a kid. You can't really do anything else. You just have to reach for the light. Yeah. <laughs> you mention yourself that you can only repress those emotions for so long. Mm. In 2010, you found a lump in your own breast. Oh, and yeah. Shortly thereafter, you yourself were diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm. I'm curious whether that made you suddenly reflect on the experience you'd had with your mother's battle. And as a result, did that diagnosis immediately feel like a death sentence? When yes. You- <laughs> yes. Yeah, it did. I mean, I did reflect on all that whole history. And I was also a bit confused because nobody had told me that I was in the risk zone. I mean, that's obvious that if your mother dies from breast cancer, your daughters have to be checked upon. So it came like um, a flash from the sky, like, okay. And yeah, my mother died from it. So I kind of knew that I would also die. And I was starting to think like, okay, I always known that I will die young and you know the that kind of almost romanticized notion of death no not really no no but more like that is my destiny i have to live very fast because i'm gonna die young i don't want to die young i i would love to die as a healthy old 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 lady but anyway when i got the diagnosis, i um I think what happened to me was almost the same as when my mother died, when I didn't grieve and I started to live. I did the same. Uh, I had just, you know, divorced from my kid's father. And just very short after when I got my new apartment, my own apartment, it was then I felt the, the lump because I think I kind of knew that I had a lump, but I couldn't deal with it before all that was taken care of. But then again, I started to live very, very, you know, I did so many things. I had so much energy. I fell in love with a guy and we had a very romantic time. We flew to New York and I was making a lot of gigs over there and I was working, 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 working so hard, insanely. And I made a short movie at Iceland together with that guy And, you know, I just, I couldn't accept that I was sick. Uh, Yeah. And perhaps that was good. Perhaps that was the best way of dealing with that horrible diagnosis. 
I mean, there are so many treatments and so many difficult things that comes with the treatment. You get sick and things break down in the body, more or less. But I didn't focus on that. So I just... But then, unfortunately, uh, it returned like two years later. And then it was not fun anymore. Then I was really fed up and so tired and so low. <laughs> and the relationship with that guy uh, totally broke down. And, you know, it was, yeah. Mm. Yet that was the springboard for your 2013 album, Demand the Impossible. Mm-hmm. It was. Can you share a little about how you approached that album? I find the whole world-building element of your creative process fascinating. Mm. And particularly for that album, I'm curious how you went about building that universe. Mm. Well, I started to write the music. Did it come out? 2013. (laughs) Yeah. Because I remember it as I started to write it and produce it after the first round of cancer. And then the cancer returned while I was working with it. It's so strange because when you know that you have a deadly disease, a lot of energy can come out of that and a lot of anger and like, so I think I I really needed to, to make a very energetic album. And I wanted to describe what was happening in my body, which felt like a war, more or less. But I also wanted to reflect on the world and what was happening. It was a lot of uprisings in Stockholm that year and a lot of fire and cars crashed and a lot of anger in the society. And also it was the um, Arabic Spring. So I think it was important to me to also reflect on what was happening outside of me and my little cell or my little space. You know, I was at home a lot. I had two small kids and I couldn't stand the idea of just writing about my own cancer. felt really disgusting. So I think that was the tool for me to describe what I was going through in my body to kind of reflect it and put a mirror to the world and to the streets. So I, well, I created some kind of society out of my body and a body out of the society. (laughs) And then the idea of creating this street profit persona? Mm -hmm. Also, yeah. Well, I think I've always been fascinated to be in urban environments. There's so much noise and traffic and people talking loud right out in the air. You know, now everybody does because everybody's talking in their phones. (laughs) 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 Um, But also, you know, all the sounds in a subway. uh, I really wanted to bake a really heavy cake out of it. Can I ask you just on a practical level, are you as an artist actually visiting this place whilst creating? Mm -hmm. Visualizing walking the streets? Very much, very much. Yeah. And I also did a lot of field recordings. Yeah, you can hear it in a lot of the songs from Demand. Um, 
the subway, the streets, and stuff that I always record on my phone, always. Because I just, I don't know. I think also I work very visually. So every time I create music or I start to build up the universe for the album, I also collect a lot of pictures. And at first it might have a very wide spread, like... I like that, I like that, that, that. but then I um, tighten it. And when everything is downsized to, you know, a very heavy (laughs) little, like a small cube or something, then I also understand how I will be able to write the lyrics and I can find the title for the album in there. So you work very much on this whole process by yourself. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I presume still there are some important collaborators or checkpoints where Mm. you need to refine the idea. Mm. Can you tell me what it feels like the very first time you start to expose others to this universe that you're building? Uh, The funny thing is that I'm always very confident, actually. I don't know where that comes from because I'm not confident in my private life. Not really. But it's like when I expose my music to somebody else, I already know so much. I know the history, you know, I know the full story. And therefore, if the person that I show the music to doesn't really understand it, I don't care because I know. I already know. And that's a blessing, I guess. But it's also, <laughs> I, I don't know why I'm that confident. <laughs> Is it strange then for you when performing live to return to these very different destinations you've created? Well, it can be pretty difficult because all of my albums has taken a new direction, more or less. I mean, you can definitely hear that it's Jenny Wilson and my kind of universe but I always stretch out for something new every time I make a new album so therefore it's when I put together a band for let's say exorcism tour I had to work with people who were really good with synthesizers and programming and stuff like that live then you still perhaps want to play songs from love and youth so you have to kind of sometimes it has been very difficult to place old songs in a new costume and maybe well sometimes I felt that oh this was a little bit too vicious to actually force that song into this costume. But I could imagine there are also other scenarios where it actually breathes new life into an old song. Yeah definitely definitely it's like almost making remixes of your own music that's fun but yeah I'm Every time it's time to rehearse, to play live, I think it's a very nervous process because then I really have to share it with other people, the people in the band. They really have to understand how to treat it. And I had really amazing constellations uh, the last few years. I had amazing bands, but now and then you have to take in somebody from the outside, maybe the drummer is, you know, occupied with something else or sick. And uh, then you realize how difficult it is to 
to trust actually somebody. Mm. So what then defines a good band member for Jenny Wilson? A good band member is somebody who can understand my songwriting, I think, because it's not one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three. It's very much uneven uh, timing, yeah. So they have to understand how I stretch. And also, I think they have to... Yeah, this was a difficult question. Actually, I've been playing for, I think, 12 years now with the same drummer, and he is that kind of guy. He is like, okay, now 12 new Jenny Wilson songs. So he's like the calculator of the group, you know, he's like, okay, because I can never explain anything. It's like, this is my music. And that's really nice to don't have to be the one who explains it because I, I don't ever have the words for how to actually do it. It's so physical for me. And I think that's why I also really love to work alone <laughs> when I produce and record my albums. Are you a perfectionist? Before, I always used to answer no. But I, in some sense, perhaps I am with my music. But still, when I write and produce and record it, I really... For me, it's a very playful way of doing it. It's a lot of trial and error and, okay, well, that sounded weird, but wait, hey... So I think I go with the flow that I create. And um, yeah, I think hmm, before I may, I might have described myself as very uh, sloppy and like, uh, but I'm not actually. I do really know what I want to do. And I'm kind of super protective of my works, actually. I think it's pretty difficult to not to play with me live because... I don't think that is so difficult, but to actually mix an album together with me, I think that's pretty tough for somebody else. <laughs> because I have, my visions are so very clear. I know exactly what I want. And then I have to say no to other people's ideas pretty often. Yeah. But presumably this process has also led to you being quite good at articulating what you want. Are you getting better at that, do you think? Yeah, yeah. As I told you before, I really hate when you don't speak the truth or be very honest. So I'm very clear in every collaboration. So I, I never try to hide my feelings because you don't have time for that. But I try to be nice. I try to be very kind and gentle, I guess, I hope. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned Exorcism earlier, mm. the album that you released in 2018. I wanted to talk a little about the experience you had that informed that record. And please let me know if there's anything that you do not wish to talk about, because I understand that it's deeply personal. In 2016, on a late evening in Stockholm, in a horrible encounter, you were raped by a man. Mm. I, I truly can't begin to imagine the trauma that you've had to endure as a result of that. I, I just wondered in the direct aftermath mm. what it was that led you to see music as the outlet for 
processing the trauma in such a raw and honest way. Mm. Well, actually, I think it was just maybe two days after I thought of myself, oh, fuck. Now I have to write about this. I don't really want to do it because I already had ideas of what was my next album. And that was something completely different. But uh, I was completely paralyzed and like, okay, I can't even touch an instrument for many months. But I knew that I had to write about it because it was just in front of my eyes all all, all of the time. So also, actually, the thing was just a few weeks before the rape, I had bought a new synthesizer, a Prophet 6, that I made the whole exorcism upon um and that synthesizer stood there in my living room and it was so expensive and like oh and i glanced at it and i walked by it and i didn't really dare to touch it because when i start i know this is gonna be such a horrible path to walk so i had to you know I think I had to wait for maybe I don't I don't really remember if it was three or four or five or six months, but but then suddenly I started to play upon the synth and it felt really good and I loved to tweak all the knobs and to um, make very disturbing sounds and working with arpeggios and stuff like that and felt like okay i i can write music that is really uplifting and clubby <laughs> and um i don't want to make any beautiful piano ballads about the rape i that was impossible out of the question and i felt okay i really need to do something that you can dance to because I was also, the night that I was um, raped, I was at a club dancing till the morning. And, well, yeah. So I started to deal with it from, um, I mean, at first I was very frightened. But then when I started, it felt very playful and it was fun, actually. And I thought it was fun to write lyrics about something that I, I mean, for sure, I didn't have the words for it yet because it was so fresh and I was so vulnerable when I thought about it. But, but that's what I love with music. You can do so many different things with it. You can play with words. You can just play with rhythms and still tell a very true and very horrible story. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Because I was really curious about the fact that in your previous albums, you'd really presented this strong persona mm. and suddenly you're flipping the coin. Not yeah. that it can't still be strong, but mm. the other dimension of vulnerability. Yeah, I really, that was important to me to show the vulnerability because I was so fed up with that strong image of me as a fighter, a ninja, <laughs> like an image that I created myself, by the way. But, um, I was so fragile. I was so, so, so weak and destroyed, actually. And the thing was that 
because I was in such a bad place, I also slipped into a very, very bad relationship. Uh, so exorcism is absolutely about the rape, but it's also about that <laughs> horrible relationship also. Because for me, it's something that's glued together. I would never, you know, I would never end up in a relationship like that if I wasn't so broken. <laughs> so, yeah. To quote the lyrics from the song High Low mm -hmm. as a vivid example of how you deal with the subject through the album. Push me, yeah, you better know. Trespassing in a no-go zone. His left hand shut me up. Listen close, I said no. Push me, yeah, you better know. He's riding and his dick's in a hole. Close my eyes, can't verbalize. Trapped, oh God, I'm paralyzed. It's very raw. Mm -hmm. When <laughs> you then went to release the album and perform it live, mm. can you share about what that experience was like? Was it daunting, cathartic, empowering, coming from such a place of honesty and vulnerability? I was terrified. I was so terrified. But luckily, the whole Me Too movement exploded just a few months before I was going to release the album. So I was very much helped by that. I was saved, I think, from not being alone, because it was still very shameful for me to be a person, a woman that had been raped. And people were more like, okay, because I was so scared to release an album where I tell people that I, I was raped. I mean, that's so disgusting and so dirty. Can you talk about these things at all? But because of the Me Too that just a few months before the release of my album exploded, people were more ready to hear that story. So for me, that was an amazing coincidence, I can tell you. And the first single I released was called Rapin and had a very explicit video. It was hand-drawn animation video. And we had so much attention on that and that video. There were so many people who kind of acclaimed it. Mm. Uh, it's because it's difficult to talk about this. No, but anyway, um, well, let me tell you. It was really, 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 really scary to release the album. and. The first, perhaps, say, 10 or 15 interviews, I was so fucking scared. And I seen myself from television interviews from that time. I sit with my hands up in the face all the time. It's like when you have a, that kind of tick, when you, you don't really want to be there, you don't want to talk, and your whole body language is showing that. And I remember that I also made an interview for a big Swedish newspaper and I sat in a sofa and my body was like sinking down, down, down. I was soon under the table. And yeah, it was horrible. I was terrified. Um, I was not ready to talk about it. Because you have to be so strong again. You have to be so powerful to be the woman who talks and makes the bad thing to a good thing. And I was not ready. Do you regret it? I don't regret it, but I, I feel 
a little sorry for her <laughs> or me, actually, that I I was too tough on myself again, I think. But then when I started to tour, that was something else because I made very colorful and very powerful and very large and fantastic stage costumes. And, you know, all of that made me feel strong. And I always felt very at home when I'm performing, especially when I have the band and, you know, the lights and the stage and the audience. So that was actually more like, okay, yes. Now I understand why the album is called Exorcism, because that's what I'm doing now here on stage. So I'm like, ah! And I think it's difficult. You know, when you work with music, a big part of it is the intellectual piece and the words and the lyrics and all the things you want to say. You want to do it in a fantastic and great way. And the other part is the physical. It's like having sex more or less. Like, ah, it's two very different sides that you have to connect. And I think for me, it would have been much better in a therapeutic way to just make the music, don't talk about it. But I made that commitment when I was 16 to talk about everything. <laughs> but now I'm like, hmm, ah. I'm not sure if I will actually do that again in that way. How does it feel now when you play those songs live? Well, it feels um, it feels great to play live. To sing the words is something else than to talk in interviews and, oh, I'm so sorry that you were raped, and you know, and then you have to deal with that. And it's something strange that happens inside of you when you expose yourself in that way. I think... It's one thing to expose yourself inside of the music, but to do it in the interviews that I've chosen to do. I've said yes to all the interviews I've done. It's my choice, but I know that that can be actually very draining. You can get hurt from that. <laughs> mm. There's been an ongoing dialogue over the years, particularly in Scandinavia, about male identity. We talked earlier about your father's stoic nature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How would you like your sons to grow up and find their own identity as men in a healthy way? Um, well, I would love to see them safe and calm and not afraid of talking. And they are having their lives and their problems and all that, you know, in their own world, even because they're 15 and 20, they're big now. <laughs> But I can already tell that both of them are really, they're really gentle and soft and they're good with the words and they try to describe feelings. So I hope they will continue developing the emotional sides. Well, I think you provide a good example there. <laughs> um, just in closing, Jenny, I mm. wondered with your reputation as being this uncompromising artist, Mm. with now a significant back catalogue. Do you ever look at your body of work? Do you reflect on where you've been or are mm. you too focused on where you're going? I've always been very not looking back. <laughs> but now I am, actually. I think I can actually be very proud of what I've achieved and of my stubbornness. 
I mean, I seldom listen to my own records, of course, but I think also now, because my latest album was released in the middle of the pandemic, and it felt very like, ah, oh, this is so difficult to, you know, ugh, get through all this. Everything was so shut down and, you know, all that. So suddenly I <laughs> found myself actually kind of daydreaming back on, ah, oh, I remember when I was playing at Roskilde, <laughs> the second largest stage. Will I ever do that again? Oh, no, probably not. Fuck. <laughs> but before I always, you know, okay, ah, that was nothing. And that was nothing. You know, I never really appreciated what I was doing at the moment. And I've always been striving. And perhaps I'm still doing that. But now, since it has been so difficult to tour and all that, you know, I do very small shows and stuff like that, I can definitely look back. Okay, I've done a lot of things in my career actually now and a lot of great things, even. And have you ever stopped to consider how your life may have looked without music? It's impossible. I can't even imagine. It's uh, it's me. Music is me. It's the better side of me. Well, I'm very grateful that you were happy to talk so honestly about all the different sides of you <laughs> today, Jenny. And thank you so much for making the time. Thank you. Nordic Portraits is a series by me, Ben Catford. The music was composed by Nina Liu and the visual identity by Copenhagen-based studio Frame. To learn more about today's guest and all the others from this season, visit nordicportraits.net. You can also follow us on Instagram and remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes so we can get the word out. Thanks for listening.